Today we're in Psalm chapter 63, and so it'll be on the screen for you, or you can uh, grab your own copy uh, of God's Word. We'll read Psalm 63, it's uh, 11 verses. So let's hear the Word of God today. O God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh faints for You as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. There shall be a portion for the jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today uh, desperate for you. God, even as we just sung, you, you are our one desire. At least, God, that's what we want to be true of our hearts today. God, we long to have a heart like David that longs for you. And God, today we come asking for you to work that in us to make us want you, to make us desire you above all else. Lord, only you can work that kind of supernatural desire in our hearts. So God, we come fully dependent upon you today. In Christ's name, amen. All right, uh, this morning I want to ask you, do you, uh, do you know what it's like to be thirsty? Do, do you know what it's like to be thirsty? Like really, really thirsty. Uh, my family and I are a little bit funny. I brought, I brought my water bottle up here today for this purpose. Uh, my family and I are funny. We all have like our water bottles. You know, I've got two that look just like this, just two different colors. My kids all have two water bottles. Amber only has, I think she's, she's got one. Every couple of years we decide like we, there's, a, there's a better one, you know, it's some kind of, you know, it keeps it colder better or whatever. But like if you stop the long family at any point, we're going to have... Now, now we're up to five water bottles. Even our 10-month-old Lydia is drinking out of her own water bottle. We always have water around. So I, I almost forget sometimes what it's like to be thirsty because it's just always there. I've grown so dependent on it that, I, that I've always got it with you. Multiple of you, uh, I'll leave it under a chair here. Multiple times you guys have brought me my water bottle after the service because you're concerned that I, I'm not going to remember it. And that's a good concern because I have multiple times forgotten it because I always have it. I just always have water close at hand. Uh, and so I, I rarely get really thirsty. But I remember especially uh, playing sports growing up. I played a handful of things, but soccer was the one that I just got really thirsty. You know, I played the, I'd play in these soccer tournaments over the weekend where you play two, three games in a day in Alabama, and I'm sweating like crazy. And our parents would have these tents on the sidelines. You know, if whenever the whistle finally blows, we just come like collapse under these tents and they spray us all down. There's four different, you know, kinds of drinks and oranges and all these kinds of things because you're just so thirsty. Maybe you know that, that feeling. 
uh, one of my brother-in-law's, brothers-in-law? I don't know. Anyway, one of, one of, my, one of the guys that's related to me by marriage, uh, Pace, he called me uh, one day uh, because he had just gotten into, he just bought a road bike and he was just out one of his first rides and uh, he, was, he was cramping up in his legs. And so he's asking me some things about, you know, the seat position and how he's pedaling and that kind of thing. And I mean, I'm over the phone trying to figure out why he's, you know, cramping. I, I don't know, man, you know, but I, I kind of, we just kind of eventually got to, hey, just stretch real good. Make sure you drink lots of water and be safe going home. You know, so let me know that you made it. And he was like, yeah, that's the thing. I, I didn't bring any water with me. This is, by the way, he's an army ranger, like super smart, super intelligent. And uh, he was eight miles from home on a bike, you know, for the first time in Georgia in June, you know. And, and having a, he, he made it, you know, he's been through a lot worse. He's fine. But I was just thinking, I, I don't come preach in air condition for 30 minutes without water, much less ride my bike in the middle of the day in the summer without water. You and I are fully dependent upon water. You, you know these things. Everybody's quoted these things to you before, you know, depending on who you ask, somewhere between 50 and 75% of our bodies uh, are made up of water. Everything we do is dependent on water. You can make it, uh, supposedly, if never tried, a few weeks without food, but you can only make it a few days without water before your body would completely shut down. Water is a s- essential to your body. It is the key nutrient in every single one of your cells. You think about that? Every single cell on your body is dependent on water. It's key to your body maintaining temperature, especially through sweat, you know, when you get hot. It's necessary for the saliva in your mouth to be able to chew and to be able to swallow. Water is a part of your body's way of protecting itself. Your spinal column is this shock-absorbing system, you know, so you can walk uh, without falling apart. And it has got water as a part of that system. Uh, a baby in the womb is surrounded uh, with a, a way of the part of that protection is through water. Your brain has fluid around it. Protecting. Your Water is a key part of your body. Every single organ in your body is dependent upon water. And some of the most, some of the key ones, like your brain, your heart, and lungs, have an even higher percentage of water in them than the others. When you get thirsty, your mouth dries out, and it's hard to swallow. You may even notice that your, your, your eyes get, get a little bit blurry when you start to get dehydrated because the tear, tear ducts in your eyes are starting to dry up, and you can't, you can't do what you normally would do. I don't know about you, but I'm getting a little thirsty just thinking about what it's like when we don't have water. Maybe, maybe you have a time when you were really thirsty that you can remember that. Maybe it was a time when it was really hot or something else is going on. King David in Psalm 63, I know there's three people, by the way, drink a sip of water since I just said that, so I understand. King David wrote our psalm uh, this morning, Psalm 63, uh, and in this psalm, he is thirsty. Like really, really thirsty. He's out in the wilderness, he's out in the desert, and he's thirsty, except for there's one thing that's different. He's not thirsty for water. No, his mouth isn't dry, his body is not craving hydration. He is thirsty, but he's thirsty for something else. Did you hear what it was? Verse 1, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Our bodies thirst for water when we are in dry places, when we get weary and we get hot, we get thirsty. 
but our souls crave God even more than our bodies crave water. My soul needs you, God. I'm desperate for you. I wonder, as much as you know that the feeling of thirst, as much as you know what it feels like to not have a glass of water when you need one, does your soul know what it means to thirst after God? Does your soul desire God in a deep way to bring nourishment and refreshment to it when you desperately need Him? I'm sure that anyone old enough to know what I'm talking about knows what it means to be in a life situation where, where you, you just know that you're, you need something. You're thirsty. You're crying out for help. But do you know to cry out to God? Do you know to be dependent on Him in those situations? Last week, we looked at Psalm 13, which is a psalm of lament. And so we talked through what that looks like for us in moments when things are not going well in life situations, to take that pain, express that to God in a form of prayer that eventually leads us to a place of trust. And so we said as we come to these challenging moments in life that that it it may be a, a different pace for each of us to go through those steps. So we can express that pain, we express it in prayer to God, and we eventually get to trust. We, it, that may take a different amount of time, but we said the first two stages are not places you, you can camp out forever. If, if you only are living in pain, or if you only even just pray in pain but never get past that, then, then you're going to be miserable. But if you can go through that and get to a place where you can trust God, that, that's where you can build your house. That, that's where you can live. That's where you can camp out with God, not because everything is perfect, but because you're trusting in God through it all. Psalm 63 is the result of a lament. Things are not great. But in Psalm 63, this is an example of what it looks like to live life camped out in trust. Camped out, trusting God through everything. Psalm 63 is David crying out in a a time of pain, but he's focused on the Lord. You may notice, if you've got a copy of God's Word in front of you, that a lot of the Psalms have a little title in front of them. Many of them, you know, just have some kind of musical note or something that doesn't make a lot of sense to us. But sometimes they give us the circumstance of this psalm when it was written. And this is one of those. Psalm 63, the very top, it says, A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness. Now, David's life was so chaotic and stressful and worrisome, and so many times he was being chased by somebody that this actually doesn't fully clear it up on when this psalm was written. There's, there's a debate, you know. Uh, so one time could be when Saul was chasing him out in the wilderness, you know. Uh, at that point, God had already told him that he would be king. And so at the bottom of this psalm, when it references, David references himself as king, then he maybe he's thinking ahead about what he will be. But I think probably, the, the and, and along with the majority of commentators you'll read, they don't connect it to the time when Saul was chasing him. They change it to another time, connect it to another time when somebody else was chasing him. Can you imagine that kind of life? You know, maybe that's, that's where you are. But this is another time, and this time it's not Saul, his predecessor. It's Absalom, his son who was chasing him. 2 Samuel chapter 15 tells us this story of Absalom, his son, who stages a coup. He, he gets a lot of the people of Israel together on his side to come after his own dad and try to overthrow him in Jerusalem. David hears about this, and 
doesn't really, he's counting the numbers, the numbers aren't really on his side anyway, but doesn't really want to try to defend Jerusalem against, in, a, in a war against his own son. And so to avoid that and, and to seek out for God, he just leaves. He and a group of people leave Jerusalem. Can, can you imagine being in King David's shoes in that kind of situation? Previously, he was king, and not just king, but he is the, 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 the best king. He's the, the king over everybody around. He's established his rule and his reign. He is wealthy. He's got everything, you know, all that he needs. He lives in a palace. He lives in Jerusalem. He's God's anointed king. And then overnight, he is now in the wilderness. Instead of sleeping in the palace, he's sleeping in whatever flat spot he can find out there. Instead of being surrounded by the greatest military and surrounded by walls of the city, he's just got a few buddies out there underneath the night sky. Not to mention the grief and the pain of his own son being the one who is trying to take over. Just put yourself yourself in David's shoes for a minute there and think about what would you be feeling? What would you be thinking? What would you be praying to God? What would your primary concerns be? What would you be thirsting for if that's where you were? David certainly feels all the things you're thinking. he, he, He has expressed all those things in many places. But when you go through Psalm 63, he doesn't actually talk about any of those things that you and I may think about. He doesn't really dwell on the pain here. He doesn't really express to God. He's he's not focused on his circumstances. You know what he's focused on? God. He's focused on God. This is a time for lament, and yet his focus is, I I just need God. He doesn't mention the palace. He doesn't mention the city. He doesn't mention his kingdom. He knows God's going to work it out, and he just says, "I, I need you, God. That is a very strange and maybe, you know, we can't quite get our minds around that. But his desire and his pain above all else in the wilderness is that he, he, he has a pain for God. He wants to be with God. So much so that he compares it to being in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Verse 1 again says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So my my call to you today, along with King David, is this thirst for God. Thirst for God. Whatever else you cry out for, whatever else you're longing for, whatever else you desire, make this chief among them all. Thirst for God. God is the one who meets our deepest needs. And I, I wonder if you truly believe that today. We need God more than we need a vaccine for the COVID-19 virus. We need God more than we need our our kids in school five days a week. We need God more than we need a rebound in our economy, more than we need peace, more than we need anything else. We need God. You need God more than you need money, more than you need a job more than you need wisdom, more than you need friendship, more than you need marriage, more than you need children or a home or anything else, you need God. And when your soul is crying out 
When you recognize that your soul is not good, it is not well with your soul, what are you crying out for? Anything else? Or are you thirsting for God? Like being in a desert. I mean, just imagine. I mean, we live in South Carolina. We know. I was outside for like two, at one point yesterday for like two minutes in the sun. I was like, what happened? It's so hot. You, you know what thirst feels like. Maybe you, some of you I know have, have been to, to, to Israel, been to the, to the Holy Land in Palestine. As hot as it is here, it is there. Maybe even more so. It is dry. There, you've seen pictures, some of that in that video played beforehand. It was kind of these deserts, maybe out in the west or something. You, you know what a desert looks like. Arizona, you know what it's like. It's just arid. And just a little bit of time out there. And you're like, <laughs> I need water. Much more do our souls need God. More than just the next thing, the next drink of water, we need God. Many, many of you know what it's like to thirst for something. I'm so grateful that God has pulled together a people in our church, many of you that have battled addiction over some point in your life. You know what it was like to have to thirst for the next thing, the next drink, the next hit, the next fix. What, what would you do to get that? How far would you go? What would you be willing to give up? What would stop you? You know what it's like to thirst for something. Well, maybe if that one doesn't apply to you, maybe, maybe you know what it's like to be in love. You know what it's like to be in love? You know what it means to desire? Just There's somebody, you just you got to spend time with them. Your soul is thirsting to be with this person. In the morning, you wake up thinking about them. You go to bed thinking about them. Just all the time, you're thinking about them. You know, when Amber and I were dating, uh, we would start a conversation at some point, and it would just stretch long into the night. Just, 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 just always something else to talk about for some reason, you know? Didn't matter who had the early morning class. We just, we just kept having something to talk about. We're in love. A couple weeks ago, we drove to Alabama. You could make it in about seven and a half. Me and three kids and a dog would make it in about ten. And for the most part, our kids and the dog did great. They really did. So that means for, you know, somewhere shy of 10 hours. I mean, we were folk, you know, but for about 10 hours, both ways, me and Amber got to ride in a car together. You know, we didn't run out of things to talk about. 20 hours, two different days. We still have plenty to talk about. Because we don't sleep, and so we never, you know, we don't have time to talk anywhere else. But, you know, it was great. I'm still in love. You know what it's like to desire something, for your soul to desire something. Does it desire? Are you thirsty for God? When you wake up in the day, you're about to go about your, your job, your task, your family, what you, whatever's in front of you, what is your soul desiring above everything else? And I don't just mean a, a few minutes of devotion, a few minutes of, of reading your Bible. Those are awesome things, but... But really, deeply, who do you desire? Is it God? Are you thirsting for God? Do you desire Him? Are you desperate for Him? When we're not, I'm convinced it's because we don't, we don't truly know Him for who He is. Because I, I think the more that we know God, the more we will desire Him. And that's how any relationship works. Well, the more you get to know somebody and you love them, the, the more you want to get to know them, the more that you want to spend time with them. And we are talking about our infinite God here. There's always more to know. He is always more glorious than you can imagine. 
And so when our souls are not thirsty, it's because we don't know him. And so listen to the way David describes this, our glorious God, to us. Because the only way we'll thirst for God is if we know this, God satisfies. We are all thirsty for something. Do you know that God satisfies us? Verse 3, your steadfast love is better than life. Verse 6, and I meditate on you in the watches of the night. Verse 5, my soul will be satisfied you as with fat and rich food. Now, I know that doesn't quite land on you like it did to David. You don't, you don't sit around thinking, mm, if I could just have some fat, you know? That's because we are in a, a nutritionally informed and calorie counting culture. I get that. But the ancient world, King David, didn't think that way. You, you, you know what he means. Fat is the, the, the flavorful part of the meat, the part that you could savor, the part that gives it some t- texture and some oomph to it. You know what I mean? The yummy part. David's saying, God, God's the best part. He's the rich part. He's the good part. And he, he's the one that satisfies. God is the one who deeply satisfies us. He meets our deepest longing was something far better than we can, we can understand. So listen to how he, how he describes God. He describes his character in the ways that we can understand it. We get a, a, a thirst for him. God, God is powerful. He describes in verse 2, he says, he remembers being in the sanctuary. He says, beholding your power and your glory. Our God is magnificently beautiful and powerful. Again, in verse 7, he says, you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings... I will sing for joy. He, he can praise God. He can worship God because he knows he's protected. Like, like a mama bird would lift up her wing and bring in the baby chicks, God has lifted up his arm and he has brought us close because he has the power over us to protect us. Verse 8, he says, your right hand upholds me. He's saying, if I was on my own out here, God, I would collapse. I've got nothing on my own. But because of God's power, I know that I will be upheld. I know that He is strong when I am weak. God's power is the one upholding every single one of us. We are able to go about the things in front of us only because God is upholding us. Maybe your thirst today is a a thirst that needs power. Maybe there's something that you feel powerless over, that you, you can't accomplish on your own. You can't do it. You don't have the strength to, at least not for long. God does. God is the one with all power. We are powerless, but we can be satisfied in God because He is all powerful. He's powerful and He's loving. It should be no surprise to you by now that in the Psalms, it's going to talk about God's steadfast Love. Verse 3, your steadfast love is better than life. And my lips will praise you. We all, we value our lives. We would do anything to protect our lives and to seek our own well-being. And David is saying, I found something even better than my very life. And that is God's love. There are very few things in life that are worth giving up our life for. And God, David is saying, God's love is, is chief among them all. This is better. Live or die, if I have God's love, I'm better off than if I didn't. If it's my life or God's love, giving up my life, I'd much rather have 
God's love. I mentioned that most people think Psalm 63 was written when, his own, when David's son Absalom was chasing him out. Even if this did happen in the earlier time when King Saul uh, was chasing him, already at that point in David's life, David knew the steadfast love of the Lord. He, he uses that word to describe God's love even before he becomes king. But if this psalm does, in fact, take place in the, the revolt, Absalom's revolt in 2 Samuel 15 and, and through 17, really, uh, that means that 2 Samuel 15, here, here this, is, this is breaking you know, uh, theological interpretation for you. 2 Samuel 15 comes after 2 Samuel 7 and 2 Samuel 11. Do you know that? Isn't that amazing? I, I really I did homework on that when I learned that. Here's why that's important. Okay, 2 Samuel 15, there's a revolt. David is chased out. But 2 Samuel 7, which came before that, is when God gave David this incredible covenant. God had made a covenant with his people, but now he, he reinstates it and rephrases it and gives it to David in a new way. It's what we call the Davidic covenant, the covenant given it to David. And the covenant, the promise that God has given to David in 2 Samuel 7, again before 15, is this. There will always be a descendant of yours on the throne. David had cried out to God and said, I want to build you the most incredible temple ever. I want to build you a house, God. And God said, no, I, I, I've got it. Thanks. Somebody else will do that. Here's what I'm going to do, though. I'm going to build you a house, a household, a lineage that was going to last forever. So one of David's descendants is going to be on the throne forever. That's the promise that God made to David, his steadfast love. Steadfast love is his loyal promise, his promise-keeping love for his people. That's what he said in 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 11, David tested that. You know what happened in 2 Samuel 11? The king who has it all and needs nothing decides he wants another man's wife, Bathsheba. David goes after her, and even knowing that she belonged to somebody else, was somebody else's wife, brings her. When she gets pregnant, he, he tries to bring home Uriah, makes his whole plan, ends up having Bathsheba's husband killed. At the end of that chapter, King David himself is an adulterer and a murderer. Does that stop God's love? No. There were absolutely consequences. It's part of the reason he's being chased out right now. But God knew. David, David knew you know, what God had said. God knew it was going to happen. God had a plan all through this. And he's not giving up his covenant. Because God's promise to us is not dependent on us. It is dependent on God's character alone. And he never changes. When God says it, it is true. So David then, out there under the stars in the wilderness, in 2 Samuel 15, if 2 Samuel 11 didn't end God's promise, if he can come through the Bathsheba account and God still love him, then he knows, well, that didn't stop God's love. Neither will this. Have you been through uh, 2 Samuel 7? Do you, do you know the promises of God? Have you tested them, 2 Samuel 11, and seen they still stand? In 2 Samuel 15, wherever you are today, they're still standing. What do, you, what do you turn to? Do you rely on God's love? Do you depend on Him? Are you satisfied in him. Maybe the thing you're crying out to today, asking for satisfaction, is for love. Maybe you feel unlovable. Maybe you feel like you're just not good enough. You don't measure up. 
God's saying, you, you can take King David's word for it here. If, if even after the, all of his sins and against Bathsheba, God still loved him, he still loves you too. Or maybe it's not that you don't feel lovable, you just feel like nobody does love you, that people don't love you the way you think they should. Well, you can take God's word for it. He does. He loves you. People may have let you down, and we'll probably do it again. But God won't. God won't. Why would we turn to anything else? David has learned at this point in his life to thirst after God alone. He alone satisfies. Nothing else in this world will. I heard, I heard a story or this uh, illustration from a pastor this week, and I tried really hard to go verify it for myself. And all I could find were other pastors telling the same story. But there are people I trust, so take this with a grain of salt. Sometimes pastors tell stories that are just like pastor stories, you know what I mean? I really try to tell true ones. I believe these guys, but, you know, take it for what it's worth. Uh, in Philadelphia, there is a, a river that I'm going to mispronounce. Skokul, I think, is how you pronounce it. What was it? Skookul. There it is, Skookul. And there is a statue of a pilgrim with a uh, Bible under his arm. I've seen that. I can verify that. I, can, I found that on Google Maps, you know. That's, I got that. But apparently, near that spot where the, the river is, Skookul, uh, there is a, a, a little water that, that comes into that, so that river. And if you follow that, that stream up to its point or wherever, there's a spring there where it starts uh, near Brewery Town in Philadelphia. And there, near that spring source, there's an inscription on a little plaque placed there by the city government a long time ago. And it says this, Whoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. That's from John chapter 4 that Jesus told to the woman in Samaria. And both for the woman at the well that day and that day, that little plaque that supposedly is in Philadelphia, if it's not, Jesus said it. So it was in true in Samaria. But anyway, they're, they're talking about the water, right? That well, that spring in Philadelphia. If, if you drink them, just like if I drink my water, it, it, it will satisfy my thirst for just a moment. But it will not last, will it? But both Jesus and these possibly fictitious people in Philadelphia are making a deeper point, aren't they? They're saying there are springs we go to that we try to drink of that are just going to leave us thirsty again. We can try to drink of the wells and not actually be satisfied. What do you turn to for satisfaction? What are you trying to quench that thirst with? And then only to realize you're, you're still thirsty again, right? I, I, I'm, I've been a homeowner for a little over a year now. I've got a to-do list that has grown since I bought the house. How does that happen, right? But I, I, there's something in me that enjoys checking things off a to-do list. Built a baby gate yesterday, and I was like, right on, you know? There's one more, there's another one today. Like, I, I, if my satisfaction is getting to the end of that list, it will never happen. We turn to all kinds of things to, to make us feel, and don't get me wrong, these, there are good God-given gifts that he gives us to, to help us enjoy his creation and to use uh, whatever he has given us. There are good things for us to do. But the problem is when we take good things and we make them into ultimate things, when we think this will satisfy the deepest longings of my heart, maybe it's a sense of accomplishment, a sense of pleasure, a sense of joy, happiness. Maybe you try to get that from your job or your spouse or your children or grandchildren. 
If that's what we turn to and we drink of that well and we say, this is going to satisfy the deep longing of my heart, it may work for a little while, but you will be thirsty again. This longing for satisfaction, you see this pop up all throughout popular culture all the time. You start looking for this, you'll see it all the time. One of my favorites is in the the movie, The Greatest Showman. If you've seen that one following the the P.T. Barnum circus story, uh, then you'll you'll know this story. But Barnum, he hosts this Swedish opera singer uh, into the United States. He hosts this this, uh, round of concerts to help try to to fund some things they're doing. Uh, This singer's name is Jenny Lind, and uh, he brings her over to the United States. And although Barnum is married... The singer, Jenny Lynn, falls in love with P.T. Barnum. And she sings a, a song called Never Enough. And it's about how nothing else other than his love will satisfy her. She says, Because darling, without you, all the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky will never be enough. Will never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough. She is miserable, isn't she? She is crying out for satisfaction. She is so troubled, and her heart is longing to be satisfied. But we all know that even if she got him, it wouldn't be enough. Only Jesus satisfies. So Jesus told the woman at the well, The very next verse, John 4, 14, But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Only God satisfies. David knew that. And part of the reason why is that he had tasted it before. He had tasted of the one well, the one source of water that leaves us satisfied, God himself. Verse 2, he's he's remembering. He's out there in the desert. He's out there wandering. Things are not going well. And he is remembering the times when he was satisfied in God's presence. Verse 2, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. He's thinking about corporate worship. He's thinking about being gathered with his people into God's temple, praising God for his glory, his majesty. He says, I beheld your power and your glory. He lays in his bed at night and he's awake. He's restless. If you don't know that feeling, you can borrow any of my children. None of them want to sleep right now. You can have them for a night. You'll know what it's like to be up in the middle of the night. And I can confess, I don't think this way. But here's what David is doing. In the middle of the night, the watches are the times when they would rotate, you know, shifts. So in the watches of the night, he says, I remember you by my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. What's he thinking about all night long as he's tossing and turning? He's thinking about how glorious our God is because he knows nothing else will satisfy. He could sit there and wrestle and plot and scheme. He's still going to wake up anxious and stressed. He can sit there and worry and be concerned, or he can think about God. Do you have moments in in your life, in in, in your past, that you can say, I I could put a a flag in the sand, I could could draw a point to that that point in my life where I was so close with God? Can you remember those vividly? Do you have pictures of times where you're walking with God 
where, where you are in communion with the Lord. So that even in the desert times, the wilderness times, you can look back and say, I know I have tasted of God. I know His goodness. I, I made a list. I won't give you my whole list because you'd be here a while. But I started making a list this week of moments I could point back to and say, mm, God showed up there. I thought back to one of the times I was, I was a, a camp counselor at this like summer camp type thing for kids. And we were going to do a little devotion at some point. But uh, some of us looked out and we're like, man, the sky, the sky looked really, looks really beautiful. The stars are pretty over the lake and there's a cross on the side of the lake. And so we walked out there, a couple friends and I just started talking about the Lord. I was probably, I don't know, 15 at the time. And the kids all came down and they all kind of looked at me and said, Philip, you going to share? I was like, I guess so, sure. And it was one of the first times I like really shared the gospel, you know, just no preparation outside of just staring at the cross in the sky. And it was just this powerful moment of just God is here. God is here. Do you have moments in your life where you can say, whatever else anybody says, I, I know God was there. Can, can you hold on to that and say, this is who I know God is? Because if, if you can remember for the past, it helps give you assurance of the future. Do you remember sweet seasons of, of gathering in here together? Do you remember back when all of us were allowed in here? <laughs> but even now, isn't it good? I can promise you, I very distinctly remember when none of you were here. And that was awful. No, it was still good. We still praised God in here together. Stacy Hartzell said, I danced more when you weren't here. But it, we have times, I promise you, I've been different churches, different places. We, we have a sweet sense of worship here, even with only half of us able to come in the building. I, I have, I have I, there was a church I went to in college, Hope Point in Spartanburg. It was one of the first times where I just, I just felt like every single Sunday I walked in the door, I knew I was going to get to praise God there. And I have since then been in times where that wasn't true. And I, I know every single Sunday I walk in this door, this band's going to help me, and we're going to praise God for who He is. I may be distracted, I may be confused, I may be stressed, I may be thinking of all kinds of things. But there's something about coming together, isn't there? It's in verse 2, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, I have come together, and I have beheld you for who you are your glory and your power and your love. Do, do you savor that so that tomorrow morning, when you don't have all of us around you, or six feet away from you, you know, when you don't have all this around you, can you still praise God tomorrow like you can today? Can you hold on to these moments that we have together, exalting God for who He is, so you can carry that through your week? When we thirst, we praise God. My lips will praise you, verse Three, verse four, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift my hands, my mouth. Verse five, will praise you with joyful lips. That's what it looks like when we know God for who he is. We praise God. And verse eight says, my soul clings to you. I love that. This is our, this is our part in perseverance. When things are challenging, we cling to God. But then we realize the second part, that all along the only reason why we're able to cling is that his right hand upholds us. His right hand upholds us. We have confidence. We thirst for God because He satisfies, and we have confidence that He satisfies us because in the end, God wins. God wins. Verse 10 and 11, David is remembering all these people chasing Him, and he says, you know what ultimately leads in? Enemies are going to be defeated. They, their bodies may be eaten by stray animals, for all we know. For us, this analogy of, hey, God, God's going to win in the end. King David says eventually He will be restored. That says the king shall rejoice in God 
He will be the king again on his throne. Things are going to work out because God's in control. Today, I want to end by asking, do you know that you two are royal? You're a king and queen if you know Jesus. Revelation 1, 5, and 6 says, To him who loves us and has freed us from sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God forever. David had the assurance God had made a promise to him, you will be my king, and I'm going to keep blessing you. So David in the wilderness, when nothing looked like it was supposed to look, he had the assurance that God was going to win in the end, and he was going to be where he was supposed to be. And so he could praise God, he could trust God even in the wilderness. And as sure as David was of his promise, you and I have more reason to be confident. Because since David did that, Jesus came and he gave his life and then defeated the grave. And he promised that all who believe in him will have a wellspring of life to eternal life. And we will reign with him as king and queen. So your, your, your call today is to believe in Jesus, to trust him no matter what's going on. And thirst, truly thirst, not for the things of this world, but for God himself.